Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. I'm one of your hosts, Josiah, and this is The Canteen, one of our regular segments here where we feature sermons from the preaching ministry at Christ Community Church. This week, we finish out 1 John in our summer series titled Thieves of Joy. This week, Blake talks about skepticism and how it can easily steal our joy. Let's listen in as we finish out 1 John 5, starting in verse 4. As we open God's Word this morning, I want to invite you uh, to open up to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to walk through, beginning in verse 4, verse 5. Uh, through the end of the book. We're finishing our time uh, in 1 John. We're, we're finishing the summer in a lot of ways. And as we, as we do that, we're reminded that we've spent the summer talking about um, a bunch of thieves of joy, a bunch of things that, that come in and very sneakily, if that is a word, steal our joy. Um, these things are sometimes really simple, like denying our sinfulness or just simply disobeying um, our lust or our desire for more steals our joy. We've talked about those things, and, and we've talked about how others deceive us or uh, shame. We've talked about how shame silences us and uh, begins to make us indifferent uh, and how indifference sucks the life and joy out of us and, and a whole lot more. We've talked about some false prophets that are hiding in plain sight in our culture. Uh, last, well, two weeks ago, because we had Love Shaville, but two weeks ago, we just talked about basic fear. How does fear steal our joy? And today, as we finish up, um, we're, we're going to talk about skepticism. Skepticism. Sometimes our, our, simple, uh, our simple questioning of the truth can really steal our joy. And so far, every thief has met its match in God's love. The same will be true today. Every single one of these things has been arrested by clarity around one thing. Who we believe in and what we believe about Him. As summer 2022 winds down, these two questions have defined our time. We've circled back on them again and again and again in honor of how John circled back on them again and again and again. The questions are this. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And do you believe that He is the one and only Son of God? You say, well, why are these, these important questions? Because 1 John 5.4 made this declarative statement. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith. Our faith. But here's the thing for some of us, right? We, like I said, we, we've heard this this or some iteration of this idea over and 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 over again. Like, I get it, Blake. We need to believe in Jesus. That's why we come to church, right? Like, uh, okay. First day of school is coming up, right? We're about 10 days out. I don't know how it is in your house, but in our family, on the, the evening of August 9th, we'll pack everyone's stuff up the backpacks will be hung from the chimney with care, 
right? We will make all the chalkboard signs that say how old we are and what grade we're going into and who our teacher is. And the picture, like everything will be ready for this morning. And um, it's, it's crazy. We'll set alarms and somehow by the grace of God, we will wake up to them. I don't know. Some of us will probably wake up before they go off. And we'll be waiting in line before the doors open for the glorious first day of school. Maybe it's just our house. This is what happens at our house, okay? Here's this funny thing. 179 school days later, our family will be praying that they don't close the doors too early and that we haven't racked up too many tardies so that we receive truancy letters. Like, does this happen to anybody else? Like, the first day, everybody's ready, and then 179 days later, you're like, hurry up, hurry, hurry, they're... You're going to be late. This, this redundancy, this, this, this over and over and over and over again, the repetition of something. Sometimes it makes things hard. It makes things hard because it's just something that we feel like we have to, to drone through. So when John asks this rhetorical question in, in verse 5 of chapter 5, you can almost hear the church he's writing to let out a collective groan. It's like, Oh, we know. Or if you're my kids, it's like, I'm awake. And you're really not. And so they're bracing themselves for one more round of reminders from John when he asked the question in verse 5, who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I'm like, John, we get it, man. Are you kidding me? You've asked us this like 10 times through the course of a five-chapter letter. What's up? But while some of us groan because of repetitions, others grimace as skepticism grows with that question. If you restate this question, it could say this. If you want to conquer the world, just believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Hold on just a minute. Conquer the world? Conquering the world is no small task. Anybody ever played Risk? Right? Conquering the world is hard, and sometimes it takes a long time to do. And that's just in risk. There's a lot of people, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are some, and some very notable ones, who have tried to conquer the world. You may remember the name Alexander the Great from history. Alexander the Great was well on his way to conquering the world when his troops started to get tired and homesick. And so he turned, went back home, and shortly after he got home, uh, he died. He was 32. You may have heard the name Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was so set on conquering the world that while he was, when he was assassinated at age 55, he was still planning attacks on how he was going to take over this place. Uh, Hitler, Napoleon, Stalin, all of these people had their aspirations of world domination dashed and crushed. So when John says, man, who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. A little skepticism creeps in. Okay. Yeah, right. Have you lived in this world, John? All I have to do is believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's too good to be true. And so we begin to wonder, the skeptic in us wonders, doesn't this break down our confidence in what John has been saying instead of restoring our confident joy in him? This, this repetition of believe, believe, believe. Let me say this, skeptics in the room, like me, you're right. This is a huge question. 
And this huge question is exactly the reason that John has been circling back again and again and again on these same ideas about who Jesus is and, and how his being the Son of God changes each person's life. I was reading up on this idea of repetition and learning, and I came across an article. I don't know how backed by science it is, but it makes the point, okay? So uh, an infant, if an infant is going to learn a word, they suggested that it takes the infant a thousand times hearing the word to learn that word. That's why every new parent hangs over their child while they change their diaper going, mama, 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 like a thousand times because they want them to, to learn this word. They want them to learn the word mama. But as an infant grows and becomes a toddler, they say, well, it probably only takes about 50 times for a toddler to learn a word. And by the time someone gets to kindergarten, it takes them three times of hearing a word to learn it. Now, I'm actually skeptical about that because recently I've been trying to learn Spanish from Duolingo, and I'm here to tell you it takes me way more than three times to learn a word. But the point, right, is that repetition is, is good. It's essential. It actually begins to give us confidence that we know what we know. And so John is going to repeat some of these truths about who Jesus is and what we should believe about him one more time. And he's, he's not doing it because he wants to bore his readers, but because he understands that this repetition will actually produce confident followers of Christ. As we repeat this and circle back on this idea of believing in Jesus, the one and only Son of God, we're going to find a confident joy that changes the way we relate and love God and love others. And anyone who is confident in their faith in Christ is full of joy. Now, through the book, John's arguments about Jesus have really been centered around this idea of Jesus coming to earth, his incarnation. He was fully God and fully man. He's made arguments that, that Jesus was more than a good guy or a great teacher. Jesus is the Son of God. And now, in his closing argument, he's going to remind us that there are witnesses to all this. There are lots and lots and lots of people who, who saw this and witnessed this and can give testimony to this truth that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Read with me in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. He's asked this huge question, this question that makes us skeptical. Can we really conquer the world? And he says in verse 6, Jesus Christ, He is the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. What is it that these three are agreeing about? What is it that they are agreeing about? It's the fact that, that Jesus came as the one and only Son of God. Each of these three are, are not only witnesses to the fact that, that Jesus came as God, but they also represent instances where others witnessed the manifestation of God before their very eyes. And, and I would suggest this to you, that the combination of these events that we're going to talk about today create the ultimate apologetic. Like if somebody is questioning their faith or questioning who Jesus is, like this is a great passage to come to and say, I want you to think about this and I want you to think about the number of people this represents that place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the one and only Son of God. 
first. He came by water. This references Christ's baptism. In that moment, it was, it was Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, a different John who writes here. And, and this moment launched and initiated the ministry that would change the world forever. People were there. They were on the banks. They were in the water. They watched as Jesus waded into the water and listened as John questioned why Jesus wasn't baptizing him. They watched as John took Jesus, baptized him in the water, and brought him back up. People saw with their own eyes Jesus be baptized. And then, and then they saw a manifestation of a three-in-one God. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 reads, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. All right, we've got got Jesus and we've got the Spirit. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If you were there that day, would you believe that Jesus was the Christ, the, the Son of the living God? After hearing that, after seeing that, I think I might. The water is a witness that Jesus really was the Son of God. But it's more than that. There were, there were witnesses at the water. Then John says, he came by water, but he also came by blood. Why, why did John emphasize this? He even comes back and he's like, not just by the water, but also by the blood. Well, it's likely because these false teachers who had split off from them they, they could explain away the baptism, right? They could say, okay, there were lots of people that were getting baptized by John, but they couldn't explain away the cross. You couldn't claim that, that, that Jesus had been a great example of moral teaching. You, or you couldn't, you couldn't do that and then make sense of the cross still. Like, There's a lot of really great teachers, but most great teachers wouldn't go to the cross for their students. I love you, but it, you know it's like there's there's a fine line there. The cross and the blood that Jesus shed on it. It was confusing for these false teachers, and so his note that that it was definitely both the blood and the water. It, it could have been to call out the inconsistent logic of these naysayers. Or it could have been that he was calling attention to what John himself had already written about the crucifixion in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, verse 34, it says this, But one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. No doubt, right? No doubt. At the crucifixion, God did all kinds of things to show himself. It wasn't just Jesus hanging on a cross and dying there. Because when he died, the temple curtain tore in two. Earthquakes started happening. People were raised from the dead and started walking around. People saw this. They were witnesses to this. Jesus came not only by the water, but also by the blood. But maybe the greatest evidence were the words of a soldier. Possibly even the same soldier who had pierced his side with the spear. And the soldier's words... Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus came by water, and he came by blood. And there were human witnesses at both of these events. But there was and still is to us a third witness, the Spirit. The Spirit. 
the Spirit. He is the truth. He is God. And he testifies for Jesus. And his testimony agrees with the water and the blood. He says, yeah, I was there. It really happened. So John explains a bit more about the power of the Spirit's testimony in verses 9 and 10, if you'll read along with me. He says, if we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater. In other words, if you believe all these people who were at those two events and said, this really is Jesus, the Son of God, then the Spirit's testimony, God's testimony, is even greater. The one who believes in the Son, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself, the Spirit within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. You see, not only was the Spirit present and active in the testimonies of the water and the blood, the Spirit has his own testimony about what is true, and he resides inside of every true believer. That testimony is within us. And this testimony is from God himself. You say, well, what is that testimony? What is the story, the true story that the Spirit tells to us? Verse 11, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. This might be the greatest miracle in the history of the world. I don't believe there's a bigger miracle than this. That God would give a sinner, someone like me, someone like you, someone whose actions deserve punishment and the consequence of death, God would give a sinner eternal life by grace through faith. And then place the Spirit of God inside of them to witness to them the truth. When I say that out loud and I hear myself say that, it's unthinkable, it's illogical, it's irrational. It's straight up miraculous. And that incredible gift, the most miraculous thing ever done, was accomplished and and paid for by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came by water and by blood. John has pounded this truth about Jesus over and over and over. He's brought all the arguments to a group of believers who are wavering in their faith. Some of us have left. Maybe we're not doing this right. Are we really sure that we believe in Jesus? Because things are starting to get hard. I'm losing friends and I'm not sure what's what. And as a result, right, they're they're robbed of their joy. They're cowering in uncertainty. And John has brought these things and pounded this truth so that he could say this in verse 12 and 13. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you, he says, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, you may know that you have eternal life. You may have confidence, not in yourself, but in who Jesus is and in the miracle that he has performed to save you, a sinner. You know, one of the beautiful things about this testimony of the Spirit inside of each person who is a believer is that the Spirit knows how to uniquely tell us the truth about who Jesus is. Who you are and how you're wired and your experiences, they're all unique because you're created in God's image uniquely. 
But in just the same way, the Spirit knows how to testify to the truth of Jesus uniquely for you. For some of you, this idea that Jesus came to to free you from wrongdoings is powerful. It reminds you the truth of who Jesus is. But for others of you, it's this idea that Jesus came to, to rescue you because he delights in you. Like, wow, Jesus delights in me, a sinner? For others, it's the fact that Jesus came to accomplish everything. You like to accomplish things, and it makes you feel good to do that, but you can never get it all done. And the good news is that Jesus accomplished all things so that you could rest in Him. Like, wow, what freedom that brings to me. For others, it's that Jesus came to show you that that He understands you. He sees how creative you are, and He knows who you are, and He wants to give you a place to belong. You can express who you are in Christ. For others, it's that Jesus came to satisfy all that you long for. He, ha- he knows all things, he, he has all things, and, and He gives you all things out of who He is. And that's good news. For some, it's, it's this idea that Jesus gamed it to give you support and security. You don't have to be afraid because He is the King of the universe and He has brought you into His kingdom, which is perfectly safe. For others, it's simply the idea that Jesus came to be with you. Whatever fun you're having in life, whatever adventure you want to go on next, Jesus is with you. And when he's with you, you're satisfied by him. You don't need the next adventure for a hit, but like Jesus is enough. Still for others, Jesus came and chose to be betrayed. He chose to be betrayed so that he could be loyal to you. And to think that you have that kind of loyalty from Jesus It's life-changing. It's good news. It's freedom that you can't express. And the Spirit knows how to speak that uniquely to you. And still for others, simply the idea that Jesus came because you mattered. You. And He wants you to know that every piece of your identity can be in Him. You see, the Spirit is this third testimony, this third witness to the truth of who Jesus is. And He uniquely speaks the truth about Jesus to you and to your soul. That gives me confidence. I pray that it gives you confidence to believe in who Jesus is. Because confident Christians experience pure joy. Pure joy. And then that confidence, that confident joy that we have, begins to ooze into how we live and how we pray. Confident Christians, you see, pray really powerful prayers. And and John transitions to that as, as application of this whole letter in verse 14. He says this, This is the confidence that we have before Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. That's pretty incredible. That the God of the universe, if you ask anything according to His will, He hears you. You see, when we have confidence in who Jesus is, we can begin to pray prayers like Jesus prayed. So as we finish up today, I want to give us two prayers that Jesus prayed as we look at the rest of this letter that I think we can begin to pray with new confidence that changes everything about how we live. The first is this, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Look at what he says in in verses 14 and 15. 
He says, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything, what's that say? According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. You see, when we begin to ask anything of the God who hears us, we're not simply asking for what we want. The power in our prayer comes when we begin to seek God's will in the midst of our lives. He hears us. And, and in the case of praying, not my will, but yours be done, that is the prayer of Jesus in the garden as he's getting ready to go to the cross. You know, in the very next verse after Jesus prays that, you know what happens? It says the angels swoop down to strengthen Christ, to strengthen him. When we begin to pray, not my will, but yours be done, about the things that we're facing in life. Man, I've got anxiety about starting school. Man, I'm not sure about where my job is headed or if it's sustainable. I'm not sure how I'm going to pay this bill. I'm not sure what my purpose in life is. I'm not sure how my marriage is going to hold together. When we begin to lean into the hard moments and the hard things of life and pray in a way that says, Lord, I'm putting this before you, not my will, but yours be done. He strengthens us. doesn't mean that he takes them away, but he hears us and he strengthens us just as he strengthened Christ. And so my question for you is this. In your life, do you want your will or God's will? I want you to stop and think about that for a minute because it's really easy to say the Sunday school answer of I want God's will, but do you want your will or God's will? When you think about your plan, quote unquote, for life, is your plan for life, God, I want your will to be done in me? Or is it, I would really like all the things that I began dreaming about as a young kid to come true? Not my will, but yours be done. Powerful prayer starts when your times of prayer becomes time where you're seeking God's will for your life. God, what do you want for this moment in life? What is your will? And how can I lean into that? George Mueller said this about prayer. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of God's willingness. Not my will, but yours be done. A prayer to pray. Number two, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Verse 16 and 17 of 1 John 5 says, If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Now, some people have read this, a lot of people have read this, and they get really caught up on like, what's the unforgivable sin? I'm not saying you shouldn't think about that, but I also would say don't overcomplicate it. Though it makes us uncomfortable, we must recognize that there are times that sin has led to immediate death. You can read about it in Scripture. We know that death is a consequence of sin, but often God's mercy, mercy is patient with us, not wanting us to perish, but to come to eternal life. So John's simply saying, listen, if somebody dies because of their sin, we should probably, like, don't worry about praying like they're dead. Sounds harsh. But he's simply saying, man, when you see someone struggling with sin, pray for them that they would experience life. Instead of excluding people because of sin, let's include sinners in our prayer. I'm not saying that we should condone their sin. 
We shouldn't. Jesus wouldn't. But, but if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him, says John. So may our prayer be like the prayer of Jesus Christ when he was hung on the cross between two, two criminals. And he looks out and says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Could I ask the question, how might our world change if instead of sitting in judgment and condemnation of one another's sins, we began to pray, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. May we pray these powerful prayers because of our confident belief in who God is. Not my will, but yours be done. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. Those are powerful prayers that can be prayed by confident Christians. <clears throat> this past week, a group of, uh, group of us from here at Christ Community and uh, from Clay Street Baptist uh, came together and we previewed um, a movie entitled The Insanity of God. I want you to put this date on your calendars. September 25th, this fall, we're going to hear more about it. That afternoon, uh, we're going to show that movie and uh, we're going to take time to, to watch that together as a church family. You're going to hear all kinds of more details. Put, put that on your calendar. But this group of people, we came together this week and we were, we were watching that. And in one of the scenes, they're telling the story of a boy in Russia. He's eight years old. He's looking back on his life and he's recounting this moment where he's sitting at the table with his parents. His dad says, I'm getting ready to go to jail for our faith because I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one and only. He says, they're going to come and they're going to take me and they're going to put me in jail. And then he looks at his wife, his eight-year-old son, and he says, they may do the same to you. And I want you to know that nothing would make me more proud than to know that you, son, were put in jail for your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm an eight-year-old son. I'm just really got level honest with you. I can't even imagine saying those words to my son. Man, nothing would make me more proud than to know that you were in jail for your faith. Like, what would cause someone to say that to their child? If only it were true. That's the only thing that it really was true that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He is our only source of hope and joy. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Are you confident in that? Are you teaching your family and your friends that truth? In this family this family of believers, we know that Jesus is the Christ. John closes his letter with a, a statement that, uh, man, it's just, it's just fantastic. It would be great to like hang it on the door and be like, in this family, this is what we do. This is what we know. This is what we believe. 
He says, listen, after all that, I want, you to, I want to remind you of what we know. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from anything that is going to deter you from that truth. Guard yourselves from it. In this family, how do we do that? We do that by the water and by the blood. We are marked by the water and the blood just as he was. Is the Spirit of God living in your heart testifying that this is true? Is the Spirit telling you today, this is true? Have you been born of God? If so, have you evidenced that by the water and by the blood? Because they are witnesses to your faith in Jesus Christ. Today as the band comes back up, you have opportunity to give evidence to your faith in Jesus Christ. For some of you, you've never publicly declared, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We would invite you to do that. Kenny and myself will be in the back. And you can just come tell us that. Like, I believe. The Spirit is telling me this is true. And we will begin to walk with you because we're family now. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you've done that, your next step is to be baptized. To come by the water to lay down your old life in the watery grave and to be raised again, to be raised to new life, proclaiming that the gospel is true, that that is what you believe. And to all who have done that, to all who have done that, we proclaim the good news of the gospel by taking communion. We invite anybody who's a baptized believer in Christ to, to come around the outside, to take a piece of the bread and the juice, that represent Christ's body and Christ's blood that was sacrificed for you on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, to free you from sin so that you could have eternal life. And as you take that, it is a witness to your faith. It reminds you of what you know to be true, that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Let's pray together. Spirit, you know each person in this room uniquely. You know the truth that they need to hear. You can speak it clearly. And we invite you to do that now. To the one who's not given their heart to you, Spirit, we pray that you would proclaim to them the good news. Give them courage to believe and to step out and say, I believe. To those wrestling through hard seasons of life, Spirit, we pray that you would help them to utter the words, not my will, but yours be done. Spirit, we ask that you would help those who are struggling, wrestling, discouraged by the sin of others or the things that they see around them. Help us to pray Father, forgive them, for we 
but they don't know what they're doing. Strengthen us, Spirit. Give us courage to be obedient to how you're leading us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Josiah again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. We hope it was helpful to you and that you were encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together. If you're a part of Christ community, let's consider how we can practically apply this into our lives this week as we go outside to be the church. If you're not a member of Christ community, we're so glad that you joined us and we hope that this message was helpful to you as well. If you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in, and experience Christian community as it was designed to be. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack and we'll see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.